year in my life, and I believe in many of yours as well, that the truth of that verse was brought to life. It was this past year. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what the days will bring forth before us. Uh, but we live our lives under the watchful eye of a sovereign, a loving, a holy, a righteous God. And, and I hope uh, for this evening, if, if nothing else from this message, I can exhort you and encourage you to recognize that your time here in this life, whether it be a few more days or whether it be many years, it is short. It's a vapor. And so use that time that you have, that short time you have here in this life to seek the face of Jesus Christ. There's nothing to wait for. He is there. He is alive. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so don't wait. Our time here is short. I look forward over this weekend to telling you some of the stories of people that lived long ago from the book of Ruth, people that lived over 3,000 years ago, and they lived their lives under the watchful eye of a loving and a holy and a righteous and a good God. And in their stories, I believe there's many valuable lessons for us today that we can see. And I hope through it all you'll see the Lord Jesus Christ, exemplified in the things that we'll read and talk about and see. I hope you'll see the goodness of God and his mercy and his plan. The book of Ruth has um, many themes that are displayed. One of the things we see in the book of Ruth is the sovereignty of God at work. We see how he has a perfect and wise plan that we often don't see, we usually don't see. Uh, We don't know why he's always doing what he's doing, but God's plan is bringing to pass his purposes according to the wise purpose of his will. That's easy for me to forget, probably easy for many of you to forget, especially when we go through difficulties, that God has never stopped having a perfect plan for your life and for his purpose for his people. We also see, and it goes right hand in hand with that, we see the providence of God. And that word providence comes from the idea of God foreknowing, foreseeing all that he will do and that will come to pass and that he will provide for the needs of his people. That he will provide for his plan coming to its fulfillment. We see the goodness of God in the book of Ruth. We see how God's goodness to his people is not just that he gives us enough, not just that he meets our needs, but that God pours out an abundance of blessings, that he has the desire, the will, and the purpose that he will bless his people with an overflowing abundance beyond what we need, certainly beyond what we deserve. And he does it with such goodness and care, such love and tenderness and kindness. And so we'll see the goodness of God and we'll see 
the salvation of God. That God is, in the things that are recorded in this story, he is accomplishing his deliverance of his people. Now, if you think about the context of when this was written, when this would have been read by the people of God, this was, this was about 3,000 years ago. But it told them a very significant story about God's deliverance of them as a people. See, they, this, I can imagine this 3,000 years ago being read by people in Judea and Bethlehem. They were reading the story uh, of something that happened several generations before, recorded for them, and it told them the story of the, the events that God orchestrated and that came together in order to bring about the birth of King David, who would be the delivering king, who would, who would rise up and would conquer their enemies, would unite the tribes of Israel, and would ascend to the kingdom and be their great leader and deliverer. And this told the story of how those things come to pass. So imagine what it was like reading this for them back then, how they would read these events that happened a few generations past, that without which would not have brought into this world that great beloved king, the the king of Israel, the deliverer. And how much more then for you and for me today as we read these things, when we understand that it is through these events that God brought to pass his salvation of his people in this world by bringing Jesus Christ into this world. This was God's plan from the very beginning that by the seed that he would bring into the world, by that man he would bring in, he would save his people. And events throughout time, the enemies of God, the works of Satan, they, they tried again and again and again to thwart God's plan but they never could because God overcame again and again and again and he assured that his work of salvation would be brought to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And sometimes, many times, through some of the most ordinary seeming events that you can imagine, a family, a marriage, a famine, travel, different things that would happen, a a woman, a young woman, trying to feed herself and her mother-in-law, gleaning in a field. And through those ordinary events, God was working his great plan. And so you can see the salvation of God. So I'd like to, I want to tell this story through looking at some of the key characters in this story. There's many mentioned, and perhaps there's not time to... uh, in, in a few days to look at great depth at all of the different names that are mentioned in this book, but we, we can look at some of them and see the lessons that God has for us here. Let me begin by reading the first five verses of the book of Ruth. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, 
and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. It begins by saying that this was taking place in the time when the judges ruled. God inspired this story to be recorded and written down around the time of Samuel. And during that time, this story was recorded about events that happened just a few generations before, during the time when the judges ruled. You can go read the book of Judges, and you can see what that time was like. Uh, Just to summarize it up, there's a theme that's repeated again and again in the book of Judges that's a good summary of what it was like during that time. It says, there was no king in Israel. Each man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that's very important when you read the book of Judges to understand that's what's going on. Because sometimes, sometimes people read the Bible and they think, well, everything in the Bible is supposed to be an example for us. Or everything in the Bible is something that God is uh, showing that he approves of. Or it's something like that. But in the book of Judges, you see people doing all kinds of things. Sometimes in the name of God, sometimes otherwise. Um, but again and again, you see them doing that which was right in their own eyes. There was no king. And yet this is going to lead up, this is going to lead up to the birth of a king who's going to come up and he's going to reign. And it says there was a certain, uh, there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Well, you've probably all heard a song that begins something like, O little town of Bethlehem. Well, this is, this is an, this is an ancient O little town of Bethlehem story. You have this man coming out of Bethlehem, and he's leaving Bethlehem because there was a famine in the land. And when I think of the famines in the Bible, I can think of at least three reasons that famines took place in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes a famine took place because God was chastening his people. God was disciplining them. God's people turned aside from him. They began to worship idols. They began to sin in different ways. And this is what God does when his people sin, when they turn aside. He disciplines them. He disciplines them. Because, not because he wants to destroy them, but if you sin and you turn aside from God, and you're a child of God, God will discipline you. Not because God wants to destroy you, but in fact the opposite, because God loves you. Just like a parent who loves their child will discipline their child so that they can bring about a change in character that will result ultimately in the good of that child as they grow and they develop. That it will bring about, as it says, the peaceable fruits of righteousness in those that are exercised thereby. God wants and will make his people righteous. So it's for our good. And even though we often, for us, our highest good is our comfort or our pleasure, uh, we might say our happiness, we want to, we want to be happy. And, and God's will and purpose for us is not contrary to our happiness. 
but we put our happiness at the highest sometimes. And so when we do that, we don't understand why God would make us unhappy, why God would discipline us or, or cause suffering in our lives. We don't understand it. But it's because God has a higher purpose, even than your happiness, your holiness. And, and ultimately, that will work for your ultimate happiness as well. But it's, it's in God's way of, of happiness, eternal happiness. So God disciplines his people, and he'd bring trouble upon them, and they would uh, eventually repent, and they'd cry out to God, and God would deliver them, and he'd mercy. And famine was one of the ways that God did this at times. Famine also came sometimes inflicted upon the people because of their enemies. That, that, uh, that was what happened during the time of Gideon, when the Midianites inflicted famine upon the people. They, they were, through their, their wickedness, they brought trouble upon the people of God in that time. And then sometimes God sends a famine in order to orchestrate his plan, to put people where he wants them to be so that his purpose comes to pass. And I think about the time of Joseph and his brothers, the sons of Israel. And the sons of Israel during that time, you, were, you might remember what happened is that uh, Joseph was in Egypt and Joseph being in Egypt was a means of deliverance for his people, uh, his brethren, and they ultimately came down into Egypt and they were fed by the grain that Pharaoh had heaped up because of the wisdom of Joseph. And them going into Egypt was setting the stage for God performing his mighty work of deliverance when he would cause them to grow up into a great multitude and then deliver them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, ultimately. Uh, but they were. But Joseph was in Egypt. During that time, there was a famine in the land, and that's what caused his brothers to go and to seek bread in Egypt. But who sent the famine? God sent the famine upon the land during that time. So God was, was working in all different ways to work about his plan. If you were living then and you were experiencing any one of these things, think about, think about, uh, think about Israel and his, his favorite son being, he thought, dead. At any moment, he thought his life was was a misery. He didn't understand. God was accomplishing his plan. And he would see in time, thank, thank the Lord, he would see in time God's plan come to pass. So God sometimes disciplines his people. Sometimes it's, it's because of his enemies or other circumstances. Sometimes God's orchestrating something. And here, uh, perhaps, it's all three right. coming together. Right. There's this famine in the land, and it's testing, and it's trying the people. And this man, uh, Elimelech, it says that he goes with his wife and his two sons, and they go into the land of Moab. And that becomes very significant, because Moab was, Moab was a, a, a nation that was related to Israel. They, they came through the sons of Lot, um, but they were the enemies of Israel. They were their, their bitter enemies. They tried to destroy them and overthrow them in many ways. They opposed them when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and 
and getting ready to go into the promised land. So they were the bitter enemies. And this is where he goes to sojourn. Um, Incidentally, it's interesting. The name of the man, it says, was Elimelech. And Elimelech means, my God is king. Which is, a, which is an interesting testimony. During this time, when it says there was no king, and each man did which was right in his own eyes, his name was a testimony of the truth which the people of Israel ought to have been living by during that time. Because ultimately, they, more than needing an earthly king to rise up and rule over them, they needed to remember and live by the truth that their God is king. And that's what you need today. That's what we need today as well. You need to remember, with everything going on in the world, with, uh, with everything that we might pull up on the news that might cause our, our hearts to fail us with fear and discourage us, to remember that we have a king. Our God is king and he reigns. And our Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father on the highest throne that there is above all the thrones of this earth. It might not always seem like that. It might not always seem that way in those events, but remember, remember God's purpose, his sovereignty, his plan. It's, we, when we can't see, God never stops seeing and understanding these things. And so this man, because of this famine, he goes and he goes, he leaves the promised land and he goes into this foreign land uh, with his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Malan and Chilion, they're, they're Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Uh, incidentally, Bethlehem, there's, there's perhaps a bit of irony here as well. Bethlehem, the name means house of bread. And Judah means praise. Bethlehem was in the land of Judah. And so you think about how glorious a name this place had. It was called the house of bread and praise. This was, this was where they were from. And this was the place that they were leaving to go into the land of Moab, to go to, to sojourn as strangers in this strange land. And they go, and as you've already seen from what we've read, tragedy befalls them. That's why I began with the verse that I did. A man does not know what a day bring forth. And when you think of, of Elimelech, who even though he's uh, in some ways such a minor character in this story, yet his actions, his decisions, and what unfolded to him sets the stage for everything else. And here was someone who, thinking that he would find a better life for himself and his family, he goes into this foreign land, and it says, verse 3, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. They took wives, and then her two sons, it says, died also. Here's someone who was left seemingly, utterly destitute. I mean, this, this was, can you imagine? I, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine. I, I can't stand up here and say, I, I can imagine what it would have been like to be in her shoes. I can't. I can't. Maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you have endured that kind of tragedy to, to, she lost her husband and her two sons. She is laid low. And so, so let's consider Naomi for a minute. Nao, consider Naomi. Um, here is a woman. Her name meant pleasant or 
Uh, it's all, I've also heard it translated, my joy. Here was a woman who was, we all know people like this, she was a delight to be around. She was someone who had a smile on her face, and when she walked into the room and she talked to you, that everyone else had a smile on their face to be around her. She was the pride and joy of her parents. They, they, they named her Pleasant Joy. She was, just, she was just radiating happiness and joy to all that were around her, and then to her husband, too. She was a joy, and she was an example. She was a blessing, and she was, we see, you can discern from this, that she was a woman who knew and feared the Lord and lived her life as an example of what it is to be a servant of God because it was by her example and her testimony that she was an example to her daughter-in-law as well. So, so here was a woman that was just a, a delight. But as sometimes happens with us, even someone filled with just such happiness and pleasantness, life, circumstances can utterly lay us low. And that happened to her. As almost as dark as it could possibly get. And yet, and yet, of course, there's there's hope in this. I mean, this story, and I I I understand the message, this story and this message, it begins hard, on a hard note, on a low note. It's tragedy, it's sorrow, it's the starkness of life. Elimelech went into this foreign land thinking he was going to make a better life for his family and he died and his sons died and his wife was left with nothing. Let us read on. She arose, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. See, God had not forgotten his people. God had not for a moment forgotten his people. And when the, when, when the time was right, God visited his people. I love that phrase, God visited his people. You know, we believe in a God who is everywhere present and nowhere absent. Anywhere you can go, you cannot flee from the presence of God. But there is times, there are times when God, in a special way, visits his people. I hope that he'll visit us here tonight, that he'll visit us this weekend, that he will visit us with his presence, that if, if you are feeling hungry, famished spiritually, weakened, tired, worn out, that God will visit you. He visited his people. He gave them bread. He fed them. Where? He fed them back in the, in the promised land, in the house of bread, God visited them in due time. And Naomi heard, thank, thank the Lord, too, that, that she heard the good news. Somebody told her, somebody told her, God has visited his people. Come back into the promised land. Come back. She'd been there 10 years. And now she's going to go back. She's going to go back. But she, let me tell you, she is low. She is as, as, as almost as low as she can go when she is ready to go back. And, and cause listen, listen to what she, how she talks to her daughters-in-law. These two young women, they, they loved her. Uh, they wanted to be with her. 
they were to a degree ready to forsake their families. Both of them seem ready to forsake their own families, to go with her. She was, she was someone they wanted to be around. They wanted to be with. Wherefore, uh, she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will turn with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. Now, this this might sound a little strange to us, what she's she's talking about, but uh, much of the book of book of Ruth it's set in the customs and ways of that time a time so ancient and removed from us but part of what's going on here is Naomi Naomi cared about these two young women and they were left destitute too even if she lost her husband she'd also lost her sons she had nothing to offer them it seemed to her she had nothing worthwhile to give anymore and, and she wanted their goods. So she says, go back. Go back to your, 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 your parents' house. Go back to your gods. Go back. Find a husband. Find rest in that place. And, and, and at first they both say, no, we'll, we'll go with you. And she reasons with them. She reasons with them in something that uh, she's making a very rational argument to them. She's saying, you know, I don't have any other kids for you to marry. I don't have any other sons. Even if I already, you know, had one on the way, and, you know, by the time he grows up, you're, he's going to be too young. You're going to be too old. It just it doesn't make sense. It's not going to work out. When she looked at herself and what she had to offer them, she had nothing, nothing to offer them. She seemed, but she... This is why I say, I think she, we see her so low. And as she's low, it's kind of like we get when we're low, we might forget that when we feel like we have nothing to offer to the people around us, to our friends, to our families, that if we have the Lord, we have everything. We have the most important thing. But she couldn't see it. She could not see it, but, but, but in this case, one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, as, as Brother Nathan pointed out, her name means friend. And we'll talk about her more tomorrow, but one of her daughters-in-law, she saw that what, what Naomi had, her people, who she, didn't, she only knew just through Naomi's example, her people, her land that she was from, maybe she heard stories of it, but most of all, her God. 
that it was worth leaving her father, her mother, her homeland to go and to dwell as a stranger in a strange land where she was liable to possibly be despised and hated because the Moabites were the enemies of the, of the people of Israel. It was worth it all for her to go. She says this, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. We see in Ruth, again, we're going to save most of that for tomorrow, but we see in her a loyalty and a friendship and a commitment that she is, she is, she clave unto her. She is so united to Naomi that she's willing to go and to die where she dies, to be buried where she's buried, to leave it all for her sake. And, and what an example to us when, when we think about what Jesus calls his disciples to do, to, to follow him. Do we have even half of the kind of commitment and willingness that she had? Jesus called his people to leave father, to leave mother, brothers, sisters. And sometimes people have to do that in a very real and tangible way to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. But he, he promises his people. He says that you will receive in this life a hundredfold and in the age to come eternal life. What you give up, what you give up will be small in comparison to the abundance with which God will bless you with. You can give it up all. You can give all of it up for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will lose nothing that is not replaced and, and uh, substituted with something of far more value and eternal value at that. And Ruth does. And what she gains is something we'll see, but it's, it, it was a, a, a great reward for her. It says of Naomi, when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, she left off speaking unto her. Now this, they go, they go back to Bethlehem and they come back in. And this is what this describes in the last part of this chapter. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? It seems like a simple question, but the names in biblical times, the names in biblical times were filled with significance. That's why we point that out, what they mean. That's why preachers sometimes will say, this name means this, this name means this. We're not trying to show off our our knowledge. I I don't have that much knowledge other than when I studied this and looked these things up, this is what I learned. So I'm not showing off knowledge. I'm pointing it out because the names in the Bible had such significance. They're filled with it. Naomi, as I said, it means pleasant. She's not anymore. She doesn't feel that way. 
She doesn't feel that her life is that way, that she's that way. She's not emanating that joy. And, and I don't know. I don't know your lives, your stories. I don't know what you're going through. So I don't know if there's someone here who feels like that. Like you remember a time when you just felt like there was a smile on your face and everyone around could feel it, but you just don't feel it anymore. Life has sucked it out of you. And that's how she was. To as, as far as a degree as I, can, as I can almost possibly imagine. And so she says, don't call me Naomi. She wants a new name. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. Bitterness. It's like water that had been corrupted and was no good to drink anymore. She, and she explains why. She says, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? She understood something about the sovereignty of God, and she, she didn't forsake the Lord. She, was, she knew she was laid low and she knew that it was the hand of God who had done that to her. She wasn't trying to blame bad luck or blame it on someone else. She knows ultimately the source of what had happened to her came from the hand of the Lord. But she was low. She said, the Almighty hath afflicted me. In see it's in in the Psalms 119 verse 75 David would write I know O Lord that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me even God's affliction in ways we we often don't understand when we're going through it comes out of his faithfulness god is faithful and naomi at this point she was only beginning to see how the faithfulness of god would unfold in her life and my my wife pointed out she said today or yesterday we were talking And she said, the Bible is story after story after story of how God creates beauty from ashes. And God's going to do that with Naomi's life, with Ruth. It says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. This chapter, it's filled with tragedy, with sorrow. It ends on this little note of hope because this harvest that they come back to, they come back to 
a place that God has visited with bread. And they come back in the beginning of this barley harvest. That took place in the spring of the year. When the, world, when the earth was blossoming into life and God was feeding his people, beginning to feed his people with good things. And this is what was going to unfold for them, that God was going to feed them and provide for them with an abundance and a mercy that they never could have seen coming. The goodness of God at work. I'd like to just close with Psalm 90 because this psalm, as well as anything I can imagine, this represents the sentiments and the the, the feeling of what God's people experienced through the ages, the, the hard, the good, the bad, the shortness of life, the exhortation that is here to number your days. As I said at the beginning, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know how long you have left here on this earth. So use the time that God has given you to serve him and to seek him is the most valuable and precious one that you could spend your days devoted to his service. It says, Lord, thou has been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth, and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. For who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto thy children, their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. May God let the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, be upon us tonight and throughout this weekend and through the weeks, days, and years to come in our lives, that we might see and know the beauty of our Lord.